we have, Dr. Call, do we have uh, DOD personnel in Ukraine now? We do. We have a couple dozen at the embassy. Other than the embassy, any other personnel? Nope. How about CIA? Are there training folks in Ukraine? Uh, I'm not going to talk about that in, a, in an unclassified setting. Happy to talk about that further in the classified briefing. Is the Azov Battalion getting access to U.S. weapons? Uh, not that I'm aware of, um, but if you have information, uh, I'd seek unanimous consent to enter into the record the Global Times investigative report that uh, indicate that talks about training. It's uh, from the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab, uh, citing that the Azov Battalion was even getting stuff as far back as 2018. Without objection, so ordered. Any reason to disagree with that assessment, Doctor? Is this Paul? the? I'm sorry. Is this the Global Times from China? No, this is. Well, that's what you read. Yeah, it might be. Yeah, would that be a reason? Uh, I, I, as a general matter, I don't take Beijing's propaganda. Well, no, no. Yeah, but just value. tell me if the if the allegation is true or false. I mean, uh, it, I don't have any evidence one way or the okay. other. As a general matter, I don't take Beijing's propaganda at face value. Fair, fair enough. I would agree with that assessment. And so, Senator from Reality Podcast, Alex Kapitko here. Here we got to listen to our buddy Matt Gates saying that he doesn't accept Chinese propaganda, but he also then was citing Chinese propaganda to argue that we need to, you know, basically reconfigure what we're doing in Ukraine. And look, like, there's conversations to be had about the Azov Battalion, as I've talked about before on the podcast. I think we have to be honest about whenever a military conflict comes out of the blue and a country needs to basically centralize resources, centralize the military, and try to respond to an invasion, you are going to get some bad apples wrapped up. And I think the Azov Battalion is a perfect example of that. Like, this is not a great group of guys. But, of course, they slipped under the cracks during this whole thing. Like, I truly believe that. But anyways, getting back to the root of this, I wanted to start the podcast with this video today because I think it's really illustrative of kind of a bigger issue in the right wing, in the kind of MAGA extremism we're seeing. Look, Matt Gates is a grifter, and he will believe anything... And he will read and cite anything as long as it helps his cause. Here we see Gates openly and clearly ignorantly, if that's a word, share Chinese propaganda from a paper out of China. The Global Fucking Times. The Global Times is not exactly a run-of-the-mill, open, unbiased source for information. It's very inaccurate and it's very pro-China. And Gates likes it because it paints a story about why we should not fund the Ukrainians, why the money is going towards groups like the Azov Battalion, and why China's correct. And Gates takes the bait and totally goes with it because he's an idiot. And what I mean here in a bigger scale is that it really seems to me that people like Matt Gates will criticize the government... They will criticize the media. They will criticize experts that they don't agree with, and so on and so forth. However, when there is a story or a narrative that they like, all of that goes out the door, and all of a sudden they accept the status quo, they accept the elites, they accept the consensus. And what it tells me is that these people are not actually contrarians. They just want to bring it all down. In this case, Gates cited 
and then entered into the record an article from a newspaper that the Trump administration itself designated as a propaganda outlet. Like, hear those words go across my tongue. Trump designated the Global Times as a propaganda outlet. And now Gates is entering that into the record as a reason why we should not put more money towards Ukraine. The insanity <laughs> shouldn't be hard to miss, but it probably will be. And the funny thing, though, too, is that maybe this shows how stupid people like Matt Gates are. And sorry, I'm not pulling any punches today. It's just, that's just not where I'm at. But it seems like Matt Gates didn't even know that the Global Times was the source because he agreed that he was against Chinese propaganda. But then he was willing to put this into the record and argue a case based on what he was reading from something that's designated as propaganda. So I guess it's okay. But maybe he likes the, the Global Times because it's against what he's against. I don't know. Moving on, but sticking on this to a certain extent, I think this same phenomenon can be said about the Lab League revelations. What I mean is that we had the revelations a few days ago from the Department of Energy. They've said with low certainty that they think the virus came from a lab. They're one of two departments out of like dozens that have said this. And, of course, it's been the Republicans that have said we can't trust the government. They have said that our institutions are broken. They want to defund or completely get rid of apparatuses like the Department of Education. They always talk about the deep state needing to be taken out or reformed or whatever you want to say, blah, 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 blah. But in this case, all of a sudden they're big supporters of the government. In this case, the Department of Energy, because it's backing up what they believe. This new assessment by the Department of Energy does not match up with the findings of, say, elsewhere in the federal government. For example, the National Intelligence Council, four other agencies, they've all said that COVID came from natural exposure to an infected animal. But look, the Department of Energy and the FBI, from low to moderate certainty, have said it came from that. And look, now Republicans and the MAGA, right, all of a sudden trust the government. And I think the Atlantic notes it well. The Atlantic says the Department of Energy's revision, revealed this week, in quotes, means that a single undecided vote has flipped into the lab leak camp. If you're keeping count, and really, what else can you do? The matter still appears to be decided in a favor of zoonotic origin by an updated score of 5-2. to two. The lab leak theory remains the outlier position. And what it's saying is that, look, it's 5-2 to two in favor of it being from natural exposure, natural origin, zoonotic origin, whatever you want to say. Now, two out of the five that have put out an opinion have said it came from a lab. So you have 40%. So I think the thing is, is that when you're a party that knows it's like losing census, losing consensus, losing like the majority opinion, every time you can find a win, you go with that win no matter what it is. And I think that's what we're seeing here. You know, the Republicans really want to rely on this lab leak narrative. And all of a sudden, after years of condemning our institutions, they are all of a sudden big supporters of the Department of Energy, much like Matt Gates is all of a sudden a fan of Chinese propaganda outlets, right? <laughs> The Chinese have a stake in putting out propaganda that says the American weapon, weapons are helping 
arm the Azov Battalion, and the Energy Department put out this decision with low confidence, and now people like the Matt Gateses of the world will say, see, we've been vindicated. On a bigger note, though, I guess this is just not good for the health of our country, for public policy, for good governance, whatever you want to say. We don't really want policymakers who have biased views. All of their decisions are based on either condemning an institution or then supporting it when you like it. This tells me that we just don't have fair actors. I mean, I'm not the first one to tell you that. Obviously, it's been going on for a while. But, I mean, there's obviously going to be more examples here. But I think the lab leak theory and then seeing Matt Gates like, all of a sudden just put all of it behind his ignorance towards Chinese propaganda just show me that these actors cherry-pick what to believe and when to criticize government. And at the end of the day, it's all bad faith. It's all bad faith, no matter what you want to say about it. Speaking about how we can basically isolate bad faith and move on, I want to talk about COVID amnesty. And ironically, before I recorded this, so I, I prepared the notes earlier today, and I went out for dinner with my mom, oh God, probably an hour or two ago before recording this, and our our Uber driver back, we were talking about, you know, how her, stun, her, how her sons, whenever the weather is any, like anything bad, it's always now justified as hybrid learning and blah, 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 and then we got into a talk about COVID, and then, you know, it always spirals out of control whenever you get talking about COVID. And I guess I wanted to just spend time talking about COVID amnesty or how we need to find some way to have a pact of moving forward in our society to just kind of realize that we were all kind of wrong during COVID. But before we get into that, I wanted to talk about a new study about masks because some people say masks still work, but then there was a Coltrane study that now says that masks don't work, and I want to talk about why that study isn't true. But then I do want to get into, yeah, COVID amnesty. But first, <laughs> this is kind of related to everything, but a little bit different. I want to read something pretty ironic and kind of insane out of New York City. So a little bit of background on this is that we have to remember that New York City was the place where, you know, COVID obviously devastated the city at first. And, of course, it was one of the cities with the most strict and stringent mask mandates. Apparently, though, while most have dropped mask mandates completely, New York City has businesses that are now requiring that customers take their masks off. And we have to remember, like I said earlier, is that New York City was one of the places where you know, masks were enforced more than a lot of other places. And now they're actually saying, please take your mask off to come into a store. And I don't think it's really rocket science to explain why they're telling people all of a sudden to take off your mask to come inside. Crime. I'm just going to spoil it. Sorry. Crime. And CBS has a good article, and the article writes here in quotes, Face masks, once an essential COVID-19 protective measure, are now being worn by criminals to conceal their identities, and that's according to New York police, who are urging businesses to unmask customers before letting them in stores. The recommendation is a 180-degree turn from mask-wearing norms at the onset of the pandemic. During peak periods of infection, 
federal agencies mandated mask wearing in public places, while many businesses required customers to wear them on the premises. <laughs> I love this. I love this in a sense, like I'm not applauding crime. I'm not applauding what's actually happening in New York City because it's problematic in a lot of ways. But it is just interesting that you're, you're seeing a city that was so stringent towards masks for such a long time. And now they're saying, actually, like people are kind of relying on these to do shit, like to do crime and all that stuff. So anyways, the reason I wanted to bring all of this up is because I wanted to talk about the efficacy of masks and this new study that is being cited it's being cited by the right and then it's also being discre being discredited by the left so i thought it was a good time to kind of look into the study a little bit so basically there's a new study that was released by cotrain which is a uk nonprofit or at least it's based in the uk and it publishes long and comprehensive basically meta analyses of current evidence on therapeutic inter interventions, medical diagnoses, and just general healthcare. So it's kind of a it's kind of a nonprofit that just puts out a lot of meta-analysis on health. And some think its new meta-analysis on the efficacy of masks is the final proof that masks don't work. Others say it's a flawed study. Just disclaimer, I will say that I do think it's a flawed study, but I also don't think it's completely wrong. And I'll get into parts of that as well. And I will let you decide for yourself, but I also figured it was kind of worth going into because I feel like masks, like a lot of the pandemic stuff has kind of gone away. It's gone under the table. Like we're trying to move on, but the mask thing does seem to rear its ugly head every time we have a new variant or some sort of new outbreak or new wave we seem to kind of go back to square one when it comes to masks so anyways back to the co-train analysis it's called physical interventions to interrupt or reduce the spread of respiratory viruses and without going too far into detail it looks this study generally looks into how hand washing and masking help reduce the spread of respiratory diseases like the flu and COVID. And according to the Cotrain review, in quotes here, wearing masks in the community probably makes little or no difference to the outcome of the laboratory-confirmed influenza slash SARS-CoV-2 compared to not wearing masks. Now, before we get into more and why I do think this is a flawed study, first I want to say I don't like the language here. First off, Masks in the in the community probably make little or no difference. Probably is not a good word, in my opinion, when it comes to these type of studies. Probably means to me that you haven't done enough to actually prove it one way or another, but based on a small range of data, you are saying probably. Also, they say to the out like makes no difference to the outcome of laboratory confirmed influenza slash SARS-CoV-2. It makes me question, like, how big of a sample do they have? How wide-ranging is this study? And is it actually based in the real world at all or just in, in, in labs? And I guess maybe I'm not crazy to ask these things because, well, okay, actually, let's, let's get into Tom Jefferson a little bit. So Tom Jefferson is the study's lead author. He is an epidemiologist, and I'll get into that in a minute, but he said that when he talks about masks having little to no difference, 
in the outcome of influenza and SARS-CoV-2, he means all masks. And that even means that N95s don't work. And look, I'm someone who wore a mask on an airline or if I felt it was necessary. Like, sometimes it makes sense, especially if you're around maybe older Americans who are immunocompromised, people with cancer. Like, my mom was talking about having to do some haircuts a few days ago, you know, with people that were sick. Like, there's there's times when you wear a mask. It just kind of makes sense is, like, if you're sick or you can spread something, putting something that blocks you from just spewing disease, it, it, it just kind of makes sense in kind of a very honest and easy uh, physics space. But anyways, I never really thought that masks would like totally stop something. I was one of the first to stop wearing a mask when I could. So I'm not, I'm definitely not a big masker. Like as soon as they said, you don't need to wear a mask. A lot of people kept wearing them. I took it off and I'm like, nah, fuck it. So yeah, I think staying healthy, the vaccine, hand washing are probably more important than masks. Again, I'm not a doctor, so don't quote me too far on that. But anyways, I guess, remember how I said that bad actors will pick up on any study or government report and say it's conclusive? Much like that energy department study and the lab leak. Well, I think in this one, anti-maskers, probably anti-vaxxers too, are kind of taking this Cochrane report as a conclusive one. And from my understanding and from my own opinion, it's not. I read a good article from Vox that took kind of a deep dive into this report, and it brought up a lot of nuance to this report that I first like didn't realize. Because look, I will just say, when I first heard there was a comprehensive report that said masks don't work, I was like, hell yeah, that sounds great. But then again, going into this article that took a deep dive into it, yeah, sometimes when something is absolute or it says this is the finite, definite answer, it's not true. So going into this Cochrane study, first, the Jefferson guy I talked about earlier, the leader of this study, he is an Oxford University epidemiologist. So he definitely has the credibility in that side of it. But the problem is, is that he also denies COVID. He is one of these like hardcore COVID deniers, but he also thinks that it did not come from China. And he's written a lot about how he thinks it originated in Europe years earlier. Now I will say, and I don't want to get too far into this because I don't think it's my lane to, but I do just want to say that if you do look at reports about the sewage water in Barcelona and cities like Venice, cities like Milan, cities like Paris, there are reports that they did pick up something similar to COVID several months earlier. But anyways, moving on. Second, that Vox article notes here, and I think this is something really important. It talks about how this review includes 78 studies, but only six were actually conducted during the COVID-19 pandemic. By the way, before I continue reading that, this means that even though they're saying masks don't work for COVID, only six out of 78, so not even an 11th of the studies, they weren't even conducted when the pandemic existed. So the bulk of the evidence that this Cochrane team took into account wasn't able to tell us much about what was specifically happening during, you know, the worst pandemic we've had in a century. And from my understanding, Vox, who really did a deep dive into this, writes, instead of looking into COVID, most of these studies looked at flu transmission in normal conditions. So it's kind of a bold, 
I, I guess it's kind of pretty bold for Jefferson and all these people with the co-strain study to basically say that like masks don't work for COVID when the majority of their analysis comes from flu transmission in pre-COVID conditions. Like to me, that's just a lie. It's a lie to say it masks don't work for COVID. And the problem here is that there are actually other studies that show that COVID actually is not stopped by a mask very well. But this one, I think, really discredits all those. And I think this study, if you look at how it was done, it's pretty significant. Also, something else that was not mentioned in this study was that neither or, or the majority of these studies, they didn't actually look directly at whether people were wearing masks. It was more studies where they either told people to wear them, recommended they wear them or not. So it was like it was all part of the study itself. And Vox writes, something else that was not mentioned in the study was that neither of those studies looked directly at whether people wear masks, but whether people were told to wear masks by researchers. If telling people to wear masks doesn't lead to reduced infections, it may be because masks just don't work, or... It could be because people don't wear masks when they're told or aren't wearing them correctly. And I think the last part is important is like, this is not the real world. It, it, to me, it looks like this, this study telling us about COVID and masks was not actually done during the pandemic. And look, like I really like, like Fox Mulder, Fox Mueller in uh, the X-Files. Like, I also want to believe that masks don't work, but right now I'm being told that there's at least some efficacy for them. And I think a lot of us who want to get back to normality want this study to be well done and we want it to be conclusive. But after reading all these articles on it, it does not actually tell me anything that is certain. Instead, it tells me that studies are less about outcomes but they're about judgment calls that can determine what information you get. And that's what a lot of these studies are. I mean, Look, they were not actually looking at COVID and masks. They were looking at what happens when you tell people to wear a mask or not during a flu pandemic. It's not the same thing, okay? It's just not the same thing. And I think, I mean, I think going back to the general, general side of this is that from other studies I've seen, look, cloth masks really don't do shit. I think there's a pretty good consensus on that. Cloth masks do not do shit. But, you know, N95s, if worn properly, they really do stop the spread. I'm not an expert, but I've read enough articles on that that it does seem to be the consensus that N95s, yay, cloth masks, nay. So that's one thing I have for sure. But I, I do think that a lot of the studies we see these days are just so disingenuous. And I, I guess my, uh, I guess you could say my spidey senses were tingling or the hairs on my neck were going up when I heard conservatives saying there's a new study that says masks don't work full stop there's nothing out there because COVID is so new it's still fairly novel that i don't think that's really possible to have like a full stop opinion yet moving on but sticking on COVID, reading these articles about masks and restrictions and actually amnesty which i want to get into in a minute made me think back to the early days of the pandemic or maybe even the early days of the vaccine and I guess I've been thinking about why I took precautions. What I mean is that, of course, we had a novel pandemic. Of course, everyone was freaking out. Of course, no one wanted to die. But the more I think, look, we're in 2023, early 20, 
I guess early 2023, March 2023, I feel like I took precautions because I was afraid about how society, my peers, my employers, student bodies, whatever you want to say, I was worried about how they would react. What I mean is that I feel like I was wearing a mask, I was distancing, not going to gatherings, doing all of these COVID measures. There was a sense of guilt in me, not because I was afraid of the virus per se, or afraid of getting sick because, you know, I was 25, 26. Like, that wasn't the biggest thing. But it was because I was afraid of how my employer or how my university or how my friends would react if I got COVID. You know, I would stay, I would have to stay home. I would not be able to do anything. I would be stuck for a week or something. And there was someone on the Reason roundtable podcast that brought this up and she's my age and I I think she really hit this well and she was like I didn't go to parties not because I was like afraid of COVID it was because I was afraid of like what society would do to me as a punishment and I thought about that for a while and I completely agree I I reflect back on everything I did during COVID and it was never because I was worried about getting coronavirus and of course that's selfish like a lot of people died it was a serious disease everyone needs to take it differently but I think a lot of like college-aged people, high school-aged people, people my age, people younger than me, they were forced to just like follow COVID protocol because if they didn't, they would have to stay home for two weeks. They would maybe lose their job. They couldn't go to school. They couldn't go to the party. So instead, everyone just like cowered in fear for a year. And it made it to the point where you could barely do anything. And I think about even when I had COVID, I barely had symptoms. But finally, when I tested positive, I couldn't do anything. <laughs> and I was forced to stay home. And of course, like you, you want to be safe and not spread it. But I think people my age, specifically, and people younger than me, obeyed COVID, not because they were worried about the virus, but because they were worried about the measures and how society would put them into place. And I think part of that entire reaction that people my age has it like kind of explains why things are so broken. And as I'm writing down these thoughts, I actually remember reading something kind of interesting. And that's the next thing I want to talk about, which is this idea of COVID amnesty. It's this idea of maybe we need to move on. Maybe we need to accept one another for where we were right and where we were wrong during the entirety of the pandemic. Now, Emily Oster is an economist at Brown University, really smart lady, and I think she brings her thoughts into this conversation because she has some really good perspectives on individual choice, learning from history, and kind of accepting errors. And she writes a really interesting on, basically an interesting piece on how we should move on from what happened during the pandemic, forgive people for being wrong, and I guess try to learn from our mistakes so we don't repeat them. And of course, <laughs> there's a lot of fucking idiots out there. Uh, there's a lot. But I also think there's a lot of people that also think like, yo, bro, like we need to move on. We need to like get our heads together here and just try to like refocus on what's happening. And Oster herself does berate anti-vaccine enthusiasts. She berates COVID deniers. 
But then she also says that good people came down on different sides of complicated issues during the pandemic, which is, I think, kind of fucking obvious. Like, she talks about issues ranging from masks to lockdowns to closing schools. And I guess basically her proposal is that the pandemic was new and under the veil of ignorance and novelty, people did and said a lot of stupid things. And some of those things have not aged well. And she writes in quotes here, We have to put these fights aside and declare a pandemic amnesty. We can leave out the willful purveyors of actual misinformation while forgiving the hard calls that people had no choice but to make with imperfect knowledge. I think all of us generally, and this is going back to my own thoughts, I think we can think of things that we did during the pandemic to save ourselves that were fucking stupid in hindsight. I know during my three months, this is anecdotal, but during my three months in Spain from March 2020 to June 2020, so about, yeah, three months, we couldn't leave the house even to exercise. I'll never forget when I took out Max, rest in peace, Max, beautiful chocolate lab, and I was threatened by the police with a like six to seven hundred euro ticket. And it was just insane because I decided to go outside in nature. I couldn't go inside. I was laid off of work. I was trying to walk around, but apparently that was too much. You know what I mean? Like it just got so fucking insane. But anyways, also, if you think about that time of year, L.A. County closed the beaches. People were, were wearing masks out on walks. They were calling out other people. It was insane. Like. Either you were yelling at people for not wearing a mask or you were the one being yelled at for not wearing a mask. Also, there was this debate on keeping schools open or closed, for example. Like, people were getting pissed off because it was like Florida was going open. Other parts of the country were like, we don't want our kids to die. And I understand my parents didn't want their kids to die. It's kind of a crazy thing to say, but yeah, some people were hesitant to just put their kids back in schools during a novel pandemic. Florida was right. I will say that right now. Florida was right when it came to schools. Now we're in 2022 into 2023, and there's kind of an emerging consensus that schools should have been open and the kids were relatively low at risk. But I am one of the ones who says, no one was right or wrong during the early days of the pandemic because we had limited knowledge of what was happening. All of us were just dealing with what was put at us, and a lot of it was just fear-mongering politics. And think about it. What about lockdowns? The thoughts that some had, I guess, about how the vaccine was too rushed or that it should have stopped the spread, even though it was good at stopping hospitalization, but it didn't stop the spread. These were all complicated things. These were the side effects of a time where we were just flooded with shit and incomplete information. And back to that article, Oster has a great point when she writes in quotes, given the amount of uncertainty, almost every position was taken on every topic. That's so true. She continues, and on every topic, someone was eventually proved right and someone else was eventually proved wrong. In some instances, the right people were right for the wrong reasons. In other instances, they had prescient understanding of the available information. And I guess the reason I bring this up is because I really do think that COVID will be remembered as one of those major schisms in recent history. Like Drew and I on the old podcast did an episode on the greatest political schisms in history. 
And I would probably, in hindsight, put COVID into that category. How we are as a, as a society now and how we were then, I can't even see if I can recognize the two. I was teaching and working multiple jobs in Spain, living my best life. And now three years later, I don't even know if I understand what's happened to society. I, I, I really don't. And I guess that's why I think we do need some form of COVID amnesty or forgetting because this moment was obviously very severe for a lot of people. It was severe for all of us, but we need to find a way to like kind of get through the cracks and work on. I think this can go one of two ways. We either admit that people act weird in times of fear and uncertainty, or we keep holding grudges. Because of this, I think some people who got things right may want to gloat. And we all know the person who's like, well, I wore a mask and I got vaccinated and I did everything correctly. And you all are fucking idiots. And it's like that person wants to gloat. I'm sorry, but that's not going to work. Then there's also those who got it wrong. And they're going to want to double down. And maybe they're even going to want to be entrenched in it. And there's always a side effect of being called wrong too many times. It makes you want to go into your silo and just be silenced. And I'm worried that's also going to be a side effect of this pandemic in a lot of ways. And I guess if we want any semblance of a healthy society or normality or just something where we don't want to fucking hate each other all the time, I think we need to move on from this. And I think Oster wraps things up well with her final few lines in this. She writes here in quotes, the standard saying is that those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. But dwelling on the mistakes of history can lead to a repetitive doom loop as well. Let's acknowledge that we made complicated choices in the face of deep uncertainty, but then we should try to work together to build back and move forward. And look, I think there's an argument to be made that, of course, there are those angry grifters out there who used uncertainty to lie and mislead. I'm talking about the clearly anti-vaccine people that were just assholes during all of this. That was bad, dangerous, and they don't deserve COVID amnesty, in my opinion. But I'm talking about the person who didn't wear a mask in the grocery store while the other person yelled at them for wearing it in the grocery store. I'm talking about the person who got vaccinated while their good friend didn't. I'm talking about the parents in Georgia who wanted their school open while the parents in San Francisco did not see the school open. Like, there's a lot of complex parts to this, and I don't think it's worth freaking out too much on all of this, but I wanted to do this episode on COVID because... Look, we are <laughs> we are going in to 2020 fucking three. And I know I'm using the F-bomb more than ever before, so I apologize to you guys. I don't usually cuss this much, but it's almost three years. And I was just talking to my buddy Jamie. I saw my buddy Nigel for the first time in a while. Niall, I call him Nigel. Um, they were the buddies that I kind of dealt with COVID with in Spain. And I'm thinking it's been three years, and... That was almost three quarters of, well, it is three quarters of high school. And it's kind of insane that it's been that long. We have gone through almost all of high school with a pandemic. And that does a lot to society. And I don't think 
enough people have come to just like sit down and realize how much that has melded and changed our society. And that's why I, I truly think that it's important to realize like COVID is here. It's still trickling through society. The lab leak is always going to be here. There's a great Atlantic article I recommend reading recently called the lab leak, like the lab leak will always be with us. And I think we need to find a way to like make sure society works again, because I'm a little bit worried that we're not doing the COVID amnesty thing, but instead we are doing kind of the eye for an eye thing that society also is good at doing. It's like, oh, you called me out for my anti-mask views during the pandemic, so now I'm going to call you out for your abortion views post-pandemic. Like, I'm, I'm worried that the pandemic really opened up Pandora's box for us. And that's why I'm one of the people who says, like, look, we're all Americans, we're good people, and we need to move on. And that's why I wanted to focus this episode on it. So, anyways, um, I do want to talk about El Salvador I was going to do it today, but this episode's running longer on COVID than I was thinking. So we're going to talk about El Salvador next week. But quick little bleeper is that El País, which is a great periodical, talks about how Bukele, the president of El Salvador, is bragging about putting 200 sorry, not 200, 2,000 gang members plus into a maximum security prison. And he's done it in about seven months. And he's bragging about like cleaning up crime, but about every human's watch, every humanitarian organization in the world is calling out Bukele saying like, bro, you are hurting people, bro. Like this is not good. And a report by Humans Rights Watch says in quotes, Large-scale abuses have been committed against the detainees and within the country's prisons, including extreme overcrowding, violations of due process, lack of guarantees, mass arrest, and deaths in custody. Thousands of people, including hundreds of children, have been arrested and charged with broadly defined crimes that violate detainees' basic due process. So basically... El Salvador has cleaned up crime, but at what cost? Uh, I'm going to talk about that tomorrow. And there's a young Republican club from New York that is saying we need a Bukele. We need a naive Bukele in the United States. And as I've alluded to in other episodes, Donald Trump has also said he wants to do something like that with cleaning up crime. So troubling to me at best. Anyways, Long episode, good episode. I love you guys. Uh, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, whatever else there is. Get some fucking rest. Take care.